Thank you for downloading this edition of Wartime. Remember, as always, Wartime is fully supported by contributions from listeners like you. For more information, please visit wartimepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy the program. Following the expedition of Vitus Bering in 1741, the Russian Empire planted its flag firmly in North America. With riches in mind, traders and trappers from Siberia soon found a wealth of furs and opportunity in the great wilderness of Alaska. Although the Russians prospered as North America's fourth colonial superpower, its unfettered exploitation of the native Aleutic peoples backfired in the form of open rebellion. From 1763 to 1804, Russian North America was plagued by warfare, and the strains of a globalized economy began to take its toll on the tribal societies of Alaska. On this episode, we discuss the rebellions of Russia's secret North American empire. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime. Zdravstvoitya, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another edition of Wartime. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On Season 6 of the series, we're discussing American Rebellions, the winners and losers with competing visions for the future of the American Republic. As always, remember, history is best when it's shared. And you can follow me on Twitter, at Brady Kreitzer, or by searching Wartime Podcast. You can visit my author's website, bradykreitzer.com, for news, updates, and events, and hey, buy a book while you're at it. You can join our Facebook page. The conversation's always growing, facebook.com slash bradyjkreitzer. And of course, you're home for everything wartime on the web, wartimepodcast.com. Today, we have a very special and very exciting episode of Wartime, as we continue to investigate our study of the rebellions that shaped colonial America. Now, as we've seen already this season... Colonial America is not what we thought it was. We spent a lot of time in our own history. We've certainly heard the story of English North America quite a bit in our lives, the 13 colonies on the Atlantic seaboard. But little do we know. But as we continue our study, we find very quickly that the English were not alone in North America in the 18th century, and the story is much more complicated than we first thought. In previous episodes this season, we discussed Spanish North America, and today we're going to delve very deeply into a study of yet another European power who had a base of operations here in the New World in the 18th century. They are not English, they are not French, they are not Spanish. They are, you guessed it, the Russians. Now this is much more than moose and squirrel. Uh, This is a very important and often overlooked part of our continent's history. And it goes to show just how complicated and just how broad the swath of what empire was in the 18th century, as well as how empire operated. This will include not one, not two, but three native rebellions in the history of Russian North America. And in each of them, we see parallels with studies we've already made this season and with studies that we will make in the episodes to come. So first, let's talk a little bit about how the Russians came to the New World. One thing you should know about Russia, 
and Russia's been in the news a lot lately, we don't need to get into that, is that it's enormous. Maybe you are Russian. We have listeners from all over the world. But right now, as it stands, Russia is, in terms of landmass, the single largest nation in the world. And that's huge. Now, factor in that 300 years ago, the Empire of Russia held very similar, not completely, but very similar borders to the modern nation as it does now. And you're undoubtedly in the 18th century talking about, in terms of landmass, the largest empire on the planet. I mean, this is no small feat. So the fact that we would think it unusual or strange or out of the ordinary for an empire the size and wealth of Russia to reach North America with the British and the French and the Spanish uh, is sort of absurd. Yet, as we go through our own history books, as we study the development of our nation, of our modern world, of modern North America, all too often, our red friends are left out of the story. That's not nice. Uh, and I think it's time we shed a little bit of light on that. I don't take this lightly, as I've said. I know that by the time this podcast you're listening to is over, this single episode will be the most in-depth, detailed study of Russian North America available anywhere in podcast form on the web. And that's heavy-duty stuff. Now, I know it's very specific, uh, but that kind of shakes me up a little bit, makes me amped to do this. Uh, so let's talk about it. Whenever we think of Russia as an empire in the 18th century, think of really uh, an empire that is cut into many pieces, moving west to east. The heart of Russia, the capital cities, the Muscovite population, people we would think of as traditionally ethnically Russian, live in the west. They border Europe. They're not a European country, but they're very much sort of sponging off of European ideals, the Enlightenment, new trends of thought in the 18th century. But as you move further, you go through what would today be uh, what we would think of as several different countries altogether, all with their own races, their own ethnicities, their own languages and customs. Now, part of empire is as you move west, all of these people do speak their own language, but they also speak Russian. It's the lingua franca of the day. And maybe they worship in the way that traditional Russians do, the Orthodox faith, uh, where they hadn't before. But all of this I'm describing is the salt of empire. This is what empires do. It's how they spread, and it's how they expand. How they get to Alaska is a very compelling story. And maybe a little bit of context for Alaska would be helpful here too. By the time you get to the 1760s, just before the American Revolution, one of the things you'll find is that most of the world, in terms of the shape of the continents and the size of the continents, is mapped out. Now, obviously, most haven't gone to the depths of these continents, but in terms of size and shape, it's mapped out. But there is one big, giant, gaping hole in the world map in the 1750s and 1760s, and it's Alaska. I mean, there really hasn't been many European explorations in the region. It's sort of a, an arms race of a sort during the 1750s. That is to say, who can get there first, who can map it, and who can uh, deal in the very lucrative trade that maybe could be found there. The Russians will get there first. They will get there because of the expedition of a Danish explorer uh, hired by the Emperor of Russia, the Tsar, named Vitus Bering. 
Now, Bering will spend a life at sea. He'll go on his first expeditions at the age of 18, but his first great expedition for the Tsar uh, is to map the coast of uh, the Kamchatka Peninsula. This is the very edge of Russia. And you would think it's strange that a Russian Tsar, an emperor, is hiring a foreign man to chart his own empire contiguously. But it's that big. But Vitus Bering for our story, and by the way, uh, his exploration of Kamchatka makes him famous in Russia, doesn't really jump into the fray until 1741, when he goes on his second expedition, this time not to the Kamchatka Peninsula, but further east, when he'll touch for the first time the coast of North America. What does he see? He sees a long chain of islands. At its nearest point, 50 miles from the Russian coast, we'll call the Aleutian Islands, and he'll even see the southern coast of mainland Alaska, or mainland North America. About eight years ago, uh, the most famous Alaskan in history, Sarah Palin, got into some trouble for saying that she could see Russia from her house as governor of Alaska. She couldn't. But if she was to stay on Alaskan soil, she could travel to the far end of the Aleutian Islands and only be 50 miles from the Russian coast. A small stretch of water separates it, known as the Bering Sea, named after, you guessed it, Vitus Bering. 50 miles, that's it. And that may not seem like a big deal, but in the world of international relations, when we think of America in the Western Hemisphere and Russia in the East, 50 miles is nothing. I mean, that's closer than Cuba is to Florida. And look how many people transfer back and forth through that channel. So, this is going to be a very close-knit story. Think of this as maybe an exoneration of Governor Palin's statements, but 50 miles is nothing. In the 18th century, it's a big deal. Vitus Bering will cross that strait. He'll see things that no Europeans have ever seen. And he'll go back home. Now, he'll never make it. Vitus Bering will die from a very common ailment that develops from most sailors from a lack of vitamin C, known as scurvy. Uh, and he'll be buried in what is today Alaska. His ship will crash, his men will stay there for some time, they'll determine where they are, they'll take the wreckage of that ship, sail it back to Russia. And now it's on. And this is when our story, the story of Russian America, really begins. And I am so thrilled to tell you. I don't speak Russian. I have been practicing for this episode. Uh, so before you get too impressed by my Russian pronunciation, just be aware, I only started doing this about a week ago. Uh, but here's how the Russians will expand into North America. And this is very similar to the way that the early settlement of Canada occurred by the French. If you go all the way back to season one, we talked about how French traders, not necessarily government agents, but individual independent citizens traveled into the heart of Canada from the St. Lawrence River Valley and traded with the peoples of the New World. Uh, they spoke French, they had French goods, so they inadvertently brought the French worldview with them. We call them the Coureurs du Bois, the runners of the woods. And by the way, I do speak French. That wasn't a practice round. Not like this one will be, trust me. We're all friends, right? Uh, so, in this case, you're going to see a very similar thing happen when Russians first move into Alaska. It's, a, it's, an, it's an eastward movement. 
The traders that come into Alaska are what we would think of as today people from Siberia. And they're thrilled to get there. They come from cities like Okhotsk, Yakutsk, Irkutsk, places that for more than half of the year uh, is minus 20 degrees, minus 30 degrees, minus 40 degrees Fahrenheit. It's a hellish world. Most of us, if you aren't from that region, couldn't even dream of understanding. By the time I'm recording this, by the way, it's zero degrees here uh, where I live. So uh, we're feeling a little bit of the pain there. Um, not really. But when those first traders from Siberia cross to the Aleutian Islands, that's where the story begins. That long uh, trail of islands going westward toward Russia. They're going to see people they've never seen before. And more importantly, they're going to find something there. Because they're desperate for anything that will make them money. That will change their world. What they find is seal. They find walrus. Uh, they find otter pelts. Otter pelts. Now, otter pelts are the most valuable. And a little bit of science will help you understand why. Otters have almost no blubber on their body. They're unusual for a region that far north in the Arctic Circle. Uh, very little fat. What they do have are incredibly thick, dense coats of fur. Think about that. How much fur would you need to have to protect your body in Arctic conditions? And again, they live in the sea uh, with no blubber and no fat. They have the densest coat, really, of almost any mammal in the world. They have about a million hairs per square inch on their pelts. Um, that will make their fur incredibly soft and incredibly shimmery when it comes time to take it off of their body and sew it into a jacket or a coat. Uh, it's not really a practical addition in terms of keeping you warm, but it's very beautiful. So the otter pelt is the, what some have called, soft gold, if you would, uh, of the Aleutian Islands. It's what everybody wants. How valuable is it? One otter pelt in 1760 can fetch you the equivalent of $10,000 today. One pelt. Now, how do these Russian fur traders get them? Well, these fur traders have a very specific name. Just as the French called their fur traders the Coureurs du Bois, uh, the Russians will call these men the Promishlaniki. Promishlaniki. And they will travel into Russia uh, as Siberian men engaging in this fur trade. Now, to them, again, coming from places that are below zero most of the time, Alaska is not a comfortable place. Uh, but for them, you know, this is like Southern California. I mean, if it's minus 40 at home, the Aleutian Islands are a dream. So they like the trip. It takes four years to do it over and back. It's a major investment of time. And they do have a system in place that allows them uh, to prosper. What's the system? This is where the details become a little bit difficult to deal with. The people who live in that specific region of the Aleutian Islands are the Aleutic people called the Unagan. Uh, and... They are the ones that excel in catching these otters. The Promishlaniki cannot go into sea with spears and kill these otters. They can't do it. So instead, they simply offer trade goods to the Aleutic peoples who live there, have them go do the hard work, trade with them for the pelts, take them back to Russia, and make a serious fortune. What do they trade for? Well, the Promishlaniki bring with them knives, axes, kettles, metal pots, things that they think native peoples would really benefit from. 
But when they get there, they realize these native peoples really have little interest in those uh, metallurgical goods. Instead, what the Aleutic peoples want are these tiny blue beads that the Promishlaniki bring with them. Uh, they're the equivalent of maybe costing a nickel. But they think of them, the Aleutic peoples, uh, the way that we would think in the modern world of diamonds. So for the Promishlaniki, they have these, these teeny tiny little blue beads, one maybe worth a nickel. And the Aleutic peoples are willing to trade a pelt worth $10,000 for a blue bead that's worth a nickel. It's a deal that works great for the Promishlaniki, for the Russian fur traders. And they're going to need to make it worth their time. Because one of the things you have to understand about this is the geography of empire. These men are agents of empire, whether they want to be or not. They're taking with them the Russian language. They're taking with them the Russian Orthodox faith. And they're offering a serious boon to the economy. But it's a heck of a trip. So after you get your fur, if you're one of these Promnishaniki, what do you do next? Well, you get in a boat... And you cross a long, very cold stretch of ocean we call the Sea of Okhotsk. There you get to, and that's a treacherous journey for most people, uh, a small seaside village called Okhotsk on the very eastern edge of Siberia. It's boggy. It's small. It's a collection of ramshackle cabins, but it's better than, you know, a frozen tundra. And that's where you start your journey. It sits on an inland uh, harbor. And... Okhotsk is nothing you want to write home about for these people, but it's better than being at the open sea. From there, you take your furs and you travel 700 miles inland to your next major city, Yakutsk. And there you have even worse conditions. At Yakutsk, you're really in the, in the cold darkness of Siberia. It's frozen solid most of the time, half the year. Again, 30, 40 below. It snows every day. People will die on that 700-mile trek. That's without a plane or a train. That's largely on foot from Okhotsk to Yakutsk. And then things really get interesting because you travel another 1,100 miles by foot to one of two places. I love this stuff. Uh, and one of those places is a city called Irkutsk. And Irkutsk, now you're getting into the modern world. You have a town with a, a theater and, and shops and merchants uh, and a massive, enormous warehouse for your beaver pelts. It is the first time in Siberia, if you're coming back from Alaska, that you're going to see anything that resembles society uh, as you know it in, in the eastern portion of Russia. So you take your furs there. Now, there's another place you could take it to. This is a, a small town on Lake Baikal uh, called Kiakta. And Kiakta is really not on the way to anything. It's very out of the way, but it's one of the most heavily trafficked, re trafficked regions on the continent. Again, this has to do with the global nature of empire. In 1727, the Russian Empire signed an agreement with the Empire of the Chinese. And in that agreement, it was a trade agreement. The city of Kiakta was decided to be the focal point of Russo-Chinese trade. So the Chinese would export teas uh, and silks, things like that, to the Russians through Kiakta. Or the Russians would export, again, those very lucrative otter pelts 
to the Chinese through Kiyakta as well. So if you are one of the Promishleniki, you're either going to Irkutsk to sell your uh, wares to your fellow Russians and Europeans, uh, or you're going to Kiyakta to sell them to the Chinese. Either way, you're making bank. And whenever travelers from Europe did go to China, they all commented on the grandeur of the of the furs on the Chinese emperor's coat. That's all otter pelt. So that's where the money's going, the global reach of empire. But amazingly, amazingly, we can't get away from this story. I mean, I know we're going into a lot of uh, intricate trade details, but it's kind of important. That fur trade still wasn't enough for the Russians themselves. They wanted more otter pelts. This is where things also get interesting. Remember, in Canada, uh, the French control the St. Lawrence River Valley, the British through the Hudson Bay Company. That's as in HBC Global today, the Hudson Bay Company, they're still around, control the Hudson Bay, and there are otter there as well. So a lot of the uh, Aleutic peoples would would hunt the sea otters at sea, sell them to the Promnishlaniki, or sell them to the British. The British would then transport them to New York, and then transport them to London, and then transport them to St. Petersburg, Russia, and then to, you guessed it, Irkutsk in the middle of Siberia. So, you're talking about the same Aleutic peoples of Russia selling their goods to two different groups, the Russians and the English, and those same pelts going around the globe in entirely different directions, but all ending up in the same place, this Siberian settlement in the middle, ostensibly, of nowhere, Irkutsk. It's amazing, and it's important we talk about it. But getting back to the rebellion nature of this story, because that's what we're dealing with here, where does it come from? Well, we talked about a very uneven balance of trade earlier in the episode. Again, that was one otter pelt to the Promnishlaniki for $10,000 back home in exchange for one blue bead. That was worth maybe five cents. You can't maintain that balance of trade as favorable as it was. Uh, for the Russians, for very long, before people begin to realize something's not right here. And this is where our story in 1763 is going to begin. To keep the balance in their favor, Russians will begin to implement, as empires will, certain specific laws or practices in their colonial holdings that keep, again, the balance of trade heavily in their favor. The Russians will begin two practices. One is called Yasak, and the other is called Amanati. And this will devastate the Aleutic people's world. Yasak is the name for a basic tribute to the Emperor of Russia. In this regard, the Promishlaniki can say to the Aleutic peoples, whereas before we would give you a bead for a pelt, already the deal of the century, right? $10,000 for a nickel. Now you just give us the pelt with no payment. That is Yatsak, that is tribute to the Russian emperor, to the Tsar. Uh, but furthermore, they had a way to make sure that this was never challenged, and it was called Amanati. And what this meant was that, and this is pretty horrible, uh, the Promishleniki, the Russian fur traders, would capture the wives and children of the Aleutic peoples nearby, the Unagan peoples, and they'd hold them hostage. And they'd say, Go get us our pelts, or we kill your family. So as you can imagine, it doesn't take long 
for the Aleutic peoples in the Aleutian Islands to realize this isn't working out. And in 1763, that is the same year the Great Seven Years' War ends in Europe and North America, you see one of the first great revolts in Russian North America occur. And here's how it goes down. A ship captain, one of these Promyshleniki giants, you would say, hundreds of thousands of dollars, named Ivan Solovyev, arrives in the Aleutian Islands. He brings with him four ships. Those ships are named the Zacharias, the Elizabeth, the Holy Trinity, and the John. While they're there, the local Aleutic peoples uh, effectively decide they will, through the odds of the normal trade, uh, kill the Russians involved. On one of these Aleutic islands called Unalaska, hunting parties from the Zacharias and the Elizabeth will be attacked and killed. Out of those two ships, four people will survive. Several months later, they would meet up with the rest of the remnants of Ivan Soloviev's crew. One of those other ships, the Holy Trinity, here in 1763 would be destroyed. This would be on the island of Umnak. So these are Aleutian Islands. Of that group, 54 would die. The final attack would come on the sailors of the ship John. These men were in a steam bath, not uncommon for the, for the Russians. Very ancient Russian custom. It's a way of, again, keeping warm, but building bonds of friendship. Uh, they would be attacked and destroyed and killed while in their steam bath. Believe it or not, uh, archaeologists actually found this uh, the remnants of this event in the Aleutian Islands. It was a pretty major discovery, but because, again, people didn't really have a sense of what Russian North America was, it largely went unnoticed. But for Ivan Soloviev, who survives this, he had been there before, and he would be back. And he knew exactly what drove the Aleutic peoples to rise up and kill his men. What was left of his men were stragglers. Uh, most of them were wiped out, their bodies never to be recovered. Uh, left where they were, some burned, some mutilated. We've seen native rebellions before. This one is no different. What was different was how Ivan Soloviev decided to uh, get his revenge. Or a better way to think of it, in his mind to uh, reassert Russian authority in 1763 in the Aleutian Islands. Uh, he went on a rampage. He killed most of the men of the Aleutic villages on Unalaska and Unamak, uh, and he knew exactly what he was doing. He knew that this was a very small community, less than 500 people. And if you killed the men of those villages, you effectively ruined the economy and the social system of that group. It was basically like killing them all. The men were the hunters. Uh, the men were the traitors. If you take them out of the picture, you have left the future of the Aleutic peoples destitute. One of uh, Ivan Soloviev's more terrible crimes in retaliation for these attacks, this uprising, if you would, uh, was to line up 12 men in a row, point a gun into one of their heads, and pull the trigger. He wanted to see how far the bullet would travel and through how many people at once. So one bullet, how many men? The answer was seven, by the way. But this is a very difficult situation. And if you are the Empress of Russia now, Catherine the Great, and you're hearing these stories coming out of your far eastern colonies, especially your only New World colonies, 
you have to be troubled by it. Because again, part of this is you need those Alutic traders to even get even get the honor pelt. So the Poromishaniki, uh, who basically had free reign of the entire Alaskan world, uh, are now going to be brought under some pretty heavy control. The real game changer for Alaska is going to come in the form of an opportunist, a businessman who was Siberian. So not part of that really Western Russian Muscovite imperial realm named Gregory Shelikov. Shelikov saw the value of what was coming out of Alaska. $10,000 for one pelt. I mean, the equivalent today. And he saw that it was completely unorganized. The Promyshleniki were running wild in Alaska. They were doing well. Uh, they were bringing fur back. Some of them were settling there. They were beginning to establish Russian outposts and towns. But there was no oversight. And there was no control. So Gregory Shelikov will go to Catherine the Great, the Empress of Russia, and basically say to her, uh, give me a stipend, maybe $100,000 a year. Give me ships. Give me supplies. Make me a knight, Sir Gregory Shelikov, so to speak. And I can bring this area under control and make us all lots of money. She didn't do that. She had heard this before. Um, but she did give her a blessing to go back and organize. So Gregory Shelikov will create what we think of today as a joint stock company. That is to say... He raised money throughout Russia. He used that money to build ships. And he sent them to the Aleutian Islands uh, with the intention of taking a very disorganized trading world that was very lucrative and just reining it in, just bringing it under control. There's also a religious element here. He is an Orthodox Christian. He does take some priests with him from one of the major monasteries uh, in Eastern Russia at the time. And these poor guys, he makes them walk a few thousand miles uh, to Alaska. But at any rate, they get there. So this is the first time the Empire of Russia has really made an organized and structured attempt at making their Russian holdings in North America uh, into something usable, something reliable. And Gregory Shelikov will organize uh, the fur trade under the auspices of a joint stock company that will become known as the Shelikov-Golikov Company. I wish I could say, because it was organized and it was structured, that they treated the Aleutic peoples better than the Promnishlaniki. They didn't. It was just it done in a bigger scope, we could say. Uh, there was a rebellion that picked up in 1783 and 1784, and again, it was largely based on the imbalance of the trade. Uh, and Shelikov put it down brutally. One of the other things we haven't talked about, in terms of how the Russians can control an entire population of people being a minority themselves in the region, is something we have already touched on when it came to the Spanish uh, in the Southwest. And it was the prevalence of European disease. Diseases that Europeans had natural uh, immunities to, like influenza, like smallpox, uh, like the common cold, uh, like tuberculosis, things that potentially could be survivable, had no place in the New World. The people of the New World had no natural immunities to these things. So again, even a basic flu could have wiped out huge numbers of people in the New World. We know by the time the Spanish arrived, after about 10 years, 80% 
of North and South America's population was gone. Those are conservative estimates, by the way. While that does include Alaska, huge portions of Alaska's native peoples are wiped out as a result of European diseases. But Shelikov will be the real root that takes hold in Alaska. He establishes a capital city of the region, known as Kodiak. Churches pop up, Orthodox churches. Baptisms occur. And by the way, uh, the Orthodox Church kind of prospered in Alaska during this time. And there's some reasons for that. Whenever the early Orthodox priests with Shelikov met with the shamans or the, the, the tribal elders of the Aleutic peoples, they asked them, what kind of God do you believe in? How do you view this world? And the Aleutic peoples had answers that, quite frankly, the Orthodox Christians believe they could deal with. The Aleutic peoples believed that uh, there was a creator. They believed that uh, two people did populate the entire world effectively. Um, they didn't really have an answer for creation. That is to say that the priests asked them, well, what happened before people? And they said, we don't know because there were no people. Uh, and that really made the Orthodox priests sort of take a step back because their Bible says God created the world in the seven, in seven days and uh, man was made on the sixth. And the Aleutics said, well, how do you know that if there was no one there to tell you? And they didn't have a good answer. Uh, but there was this general sense amongst the Aleutic peoples that the story of creation and the story of God did have a lot of in common. Here's another really good example. The Aleutic peoples believed the world, as they see it, basically looked like this. There was a bowl of water, and floating in that water was a sponge. The sponge is the earth. Okay. Above them was something that looked like a dome, under the dome, with a hole in it. Now, above that hole, that's where the gods live. That's where the creator lived. And as people, we could travel through that hole in the sky and talk to the god. Unfortunately for them, uh, there was a rule that was broken. There was a law that was broken. Uh, something changed that closed off that hole, that direct communication with the creator. And that made man effectively separate from God forevermore. Now, when the Orthodox Christian priests heard this, they said, voila, that's the fall of man. That's Adam and Eve. That's the Garden of Eden story. So what I'm saying is there were enough parallels that Orthodox Christianity could actually do pretty well there. Um, and it really allowed the Russians to get a pretty strong foothold in North America. We talked about the influence of religion, episode two of this season, with the Spanish uh, and we talked about how religion plays a role in imperialism. And here's a really good example of it. One in a place, however, we didn't typically see. The story does continue for the Russians. Into the 1790s and all the way to 1804. Really till 1867 when the Americans buy Alaska from them. But there's one more event I want to focus on in the last few minutes. Which really is the last great rebellion or revolt that occurs against the Russians by the native peoples in Alaska. And many call it the Battle of Sitka. Now, this doesn't take place in the Aleutian Islands, so we are jumping ahead a bit. 
It takes place in southern Alaska, along the coast of the mainland. And it involves a people called the Clinket, rebelling against uh, what is now an organized uh, Russian imperial business venture in the region. It begins in 1802, uh, when a group of Clinket warriors will attack a major outpost that the Russians had built. The reasons are the reasons we talked about. An unfair balance of trade, uh, a general distaste for Russian presence in the region. But it really takes hold in 1804, whenever it results in a massive four-day battle we call the Battle of Sitka. By this point, the Russians have blockhouses built on the coast. They have forts built in Alaska. And I know you might not have known this, but if you go there, these are state parks and national parks today. They have rebuilt some of these Russian stockades. The Alaskans can tell you the history of Russia in the region. Uh, but I think for most Americans, it's a disconnect we have. Go to the Sitka battlefield, and you'll see it. Uh, the Clinket peoples build a fairly impressive fort that they refer to as the Fort of the Young Saplings. And they believe it's in that fort they can hold off a Russian attack. They can't. It results in a four-day battle. The Russian Navy arrives. Uh, they blow this fort to smithereens. Many of the Klinkin inside escape in the night to try to continue the battle. But in the end, the resistance falls apart. This would lead the Klinkin to go on what's known famously as their survival march. It is to say they abandon the region in which the battle occurs in an effort to maybe regroup uh, to maybe recalculate, maybe just to survive. But for the Russians, it's the last great resistance against their hold over the region. They'll build their own fort on the site of the Fort of the Young Saplings. And again, this will go on to be a permanent addition to the landscape. In fact, it's still there now. Sitka National Park is still a place you can visit. Uh, the Clinket are very notable for their totems. You may be seeing totem poles, very much in their culture. Um, and totem poles, if we can talk a little bit about that, show the close connection uh, that native peoples have to nature. Uh, here's a basic sort of sense of the Clinket and maybe the Aleutic peoples to a degree as well, that kind of help you understand what I'm talking about. The, the, the native peoples of Alaska believe that uh, animals allow human beings to live in their world. Their creation story says uh, a ship washes up on shore in Alaska. These are the first human beings. And all the animals laugh at them. They don't have fur. They don't have sharp teeth. They don't have claws. They don't have blubber. How can they survive? And as the story goes, the animals agree we will sacrifice ourselves so these silly people can live. Uh, the Animals allow themselves to be eaten for sustenance. They donate their fur and pelts so human beings can survive. And this is very much at the core of what these native peoples believe. So when you go out hunting, uh, they believe animals work together. The birds will tell the seals when trouble's coming. If you're able to kill an animal, it's not because you're a great hunter. It's because these animals allow you to kill them. It's their sacrifice to you. So in turn, you have to respect them. In that regard, all beings have the light or the fire of God inside of them. All life has meaning. 
a human life is no more important or meaningful than animal life. And this is what drives the native peoples of Alaska. And again, it's, it's what makes their culture so rich and why they are willing to defend it. They will, in many ways, lose out to the Russians in the 1760s, 70s, 80s, 90s, and the early 1800s. But the defense is not for the same reasons we typically see. It's very much defending their land, as well as their way of life, as well as the the animals and, 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 and other sentient, meaningful beings around them. So, resistance does occur in the New World. In 1763, in 1783, uh, that's the end of the Seven Years' War in North America, the end of the American Revolution, 1783 in North America as well, and in 1803, 1804. This is very much when the Louisiana Purchase is made, if you're keeping track. And this all happens in North America, and even more than that. It all happens in what we consider today to be the United States. Again, we don't often think of Russian expansion and Russian colonization as a major force of being in the New World, but it was very much part of the story. Ask people in Alaska today if they're part of the United States. I think they'd have pretty strong sentiments that they are. And I know we have some people in Alaska that donate to the show. Mike, I'm talking about you. So I hope you enjoy it. Um, But this is an important part of the story. And we're going to go chronologically this season. And anytime we can turn over some new stones, I think that's what what we really should be doing here. So, thank you for joining us. This is going to be a great season. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Wartime.